is where can you produce the greatest degree of force down into the ground? Yeah, 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 yeah. I would just uh, basically the first time they being here and is super nervous to ask me the question. I'm a powerlifter. And today my question is, uh, I, I seems like a narrow type. Uh -huh. I really want to like uh, increase the um, sumo deadlift. Yeah, because I want to be the top of the level. So what do you think about uh, the strategy about that? For what? Uh, for increased uh, sumo deadlift. Well, you've got, a, you've got a bias towards external rotation and a sumo would be in an externally rotated representation. So the question mark is, is where can you produce the greatest degree of force down into the ground? Okay. If you're a narrow ISA, narrow asset um your ability to capture the the ir position of the pelvis is reduced doesn't mean you don't produce ir just means that how you do it and where you do it will be different so like if you were to try to lift conventional yeah you may not even be able to assume a position that will allow you to push down into the ground effectively because um, if, if like, and again, you, you might have a representation of this, if you ever video yourself doing a conventional deadlift versus the sumo, what you'll find is, is that you can, you can actually capture a, uh, a better pelvic position in the wider stance, um, just because yeah, of your, yeah. like, like you're more upright in a sumo than you would be in a conventional, right? Yeah. And that would be advantageous for you to push down into the ground. If you have to, like, so if you sit down into a conventional deadlift and you see that, that, you know, that little rounding of your lower back, like right above your pelvis, to get into that conventional position, you have not optimized your downforce. You actually have connective tissues that are in a, in a position where they're not stiff enough and therefore you cannot push as hard into the ground. It actually dampens your ability to push down. Okay, so this requires an experiment as to what positions you can acquire most effectively. As a narrow, as a narrow, your bias is towards more of an upright type of pull from the ground, which would be more like a squat. Okay, okay. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. and the 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 thing about it is, is like if you if you test both of them, you tend to gravitate towards one. Oh, somebody got a new shirt. <laughs> uh, you tend to gravitate towards one, one strategy or the other because you'll number one, it'll be more comfortable. Um, you'll feel like you can push harder to the ground, and then ultimately you just track it over time, and you'll see that that okay, if I'm a sumo guy, my sumo numbers keep going up, my conventional sort of tops out, and it and it doesn't go far enough. Like a my sumo deadlift, it were just like um around a probably 30 to 50 pounds like heavier than the conventional. I'm, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not understanding what you're what you're saying. My my sumo deadlift is um like uh 30 pounds to 50 pounds heavier than the uh, conventional. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
That sounds like a better strategy already, right? Because that's the goal when you're a powerlifter is to lift heavier weights, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I would, what I would do is I would get a side view, right? I get a side view? A side view on video, okay? Get a side view on video. And I would compare the two positions. And then I would look at like, and get a decent amount of weight on there. Don't hurt yourself. And then make yeah. the comparison as to as to um, which position gives you the best direction of pull. If you find that you have to lean over or your low back has to round in the conventional, it's probably not going to be suitable for you um, from a long term strategy. Like I said, your your bias is to turn outward as a narrow ISA individual. You'll tend to be able to produce more force in that position. All right, in what what pelvis shape do I need to push into the ground? Good morning, happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. I, I wonder, you know, the Trendelenburg gate when, when someone is, yeah. uh, so in mid-stance they are, uh, not hiking the pelvis, it is going down. Pelvis is going down. In the, so uh, uh, how do you explain this in the eyes of your model? I mean, in the view of your model, uh, first, what, what happened that caused it? And uh, how would you advise to fix it? When it happens on one side, on the left side. Okay. Um we're going to make an assumption that there's no neurological disorders, okay? Let's, let's eliminate that. That's a different story, okay? Right. All right, in what, what pelvis shape do I need to push into the ground? Effective, uh, I, effective. I, uh, I need an IR pelvis shape, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so nutated sacrum, IR denominant, high pressure, I need a, a anterior pelvic outlet that can concentrically orient. You understand that? Right. Okay. What if I push into the ground and it's not that? Uh, I, uh, the, the if I take an ER pelvis, if I take an ER pelvis, uh, and I put you a dead center middle propulsion. You will orient uh, forward? Well, you, you, yeah, you're going to orient. You're going to orient, but what if I squeeze you front to back? What directions can you move? To the side? Sideways. What do you think a Trendelenburg is? Oh, exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, Trendelenburg, a Trendelenburg is, is an ER pelvis with anterior-posterior compressor strategy and an anterior orientation. It's a turn into the ground. It's not, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's literally an attempt to, to push into the ground with a with a low pressure pelvis representation, but there's only one place that, that the expansion is allowed, and that's sideways. So that's why you move in that direction. But it's a twist inward in an attempt to push down with an ER pelvis. So what you what would you do about it if it if there is no what is the obvious solution here, Annette? To to create a real IR in the and that's it. That's the solution, right? Like that's now when I say that it's like it's not lickety split that easy, obviously, but no. you know what you have to acquire. So what measures would you have to have 
intact to push into the ground? Uh, the, I, I think that the, maybe the, the center of mass has to move. Uh, what to measure? I can get, you can uh, one measure will one measure will assure that I can that I, that I have access to the position. I am. I am. I am straight down. It's interrotation straight down in the ground. Without a compensation. Without a compensation. But with the Trendelenburg in, in one side, you would get IR. When when you when you lie them on the back and measure the the femur, I how the femur is IRing in the is that, that the femur IRing? The the hip. Is that the hip IRing? No, it's the spine, but uh, okay, so is that IR? No. It is IR. It's a just compensatory IR, right? right? What we want is relative motion, internal rotation of the hip pushing straight down into the ground. Yeah. And you don't have it. Now, in the literature and in school, uh, who who's close to school? Anybody on here that was close enough to PT school that they remember what they taught? No? Just me? Okay. Uh, and that, what muscle do they blame for weakness in a Trendelenburg gait? The adductor, the inner adductor, the inner thigh muscles. They blame the adductor as the weak muscle? It, it, it is not uh, adducting the, or uh, the glutes. The glute medius. They, they, they blame glute medius to be to be weak. And so what they do is they lay people on their side and they do the traditional Florence Kendall manual muscle test. They go, look, a weak glute medius. And then they do some stuff and then they push on it again. They go, look, it's now strong. When the reality is, is what they actually had to do was achieve a pelvic shape change to get the muscle to actually produce force. So it's not that the muscle itself is weak. It's not that it lacks cross-sectional area. It's just, it was out of position to produce force in the position that they tested in. They changed that position. The muscle is now forceful, okay? Yeah, so they blame a muscle and they accidentally do something correct. But what, it, what, the, what, the, what the solution is, is to create the shape change that is necessary to produce force straight into the ground. So you would give them a rolling on the side to shape the IR of the... Maybe, maybe. Depends on who we're talking about. So, see, this is it. This is the thing. It's like, I can't give you the cookbook solution because I don't know who we're talking about, but I can tell you what your end game needs to be is you better be able to push straight down to the ground in IR. And there's very simple measurement that you can take to, to determine that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, anytime that stuff needs to be constructed, so when we're talking about like muscle mass or mitochondrial development, um, there, there's this tendency to look at it as a four to six week period where you're going to see like a, a decent amount of adaptation. And then there's about a four to six week period where it's going to decline. Okay. That, I think that's what I was kind of getting at is... Uh, uh, when we're talking about, I guess, traditional performance capabilities, whether they be around different different rates of force production or um, like metabolic type things, like that, 
I guess that's a, there's a little bit more evidence to like, I guess, kind of understand what, what your trade-offs are there and, and the timing part. But then when you factor in improving movement capabilities, that becomes very individual. I, I get, and they're all individual, obviously, but mm-hmm. I guess I just, in observation notice that becomes very individual um, as far as an ex, you know, a certain amount of exposures to higher output work can really take away a lot of movement capabilities from one athlete and not so much the other. Yeah, Um, especially in the world of of higher specialization. So like a baseball mm -hmm. pitcher. Yeah. Right? Because they're so focused on one one aspect of performance. Right? Okay. Right. And so then general, general approaches will work initially for them. Right. If they've never been exposed to certain things, right, then you get the adaptations. But and again, this creates a lot of confusion. And and this is where, you know, turf wars and all these discussions say, uh, you don't need to do that. And the other guy says, yes, you do. And then the other guy says, no, you don't. And they go back and forth. And they're they're both right because they're they're speaking about different circumstances, you know, mm-hmm. where a different level of 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 you know, training age, just look at somebody's training age and you look at what they've been exposed to. It's like, you just can't expose people to everything that you want to do because they don't have the, they don't have the capacity to tolerate it. Right. And so, so the the way to look at this is, is, you know, you back up and you get your 10,000 foot view. You, You look at stuff from a distance and you look at all of the things that I need. And it's like, where can I place this? Where's the best place that I create the least amount of conflict? Um, Anytime that stuff needs to be constructed, so when we're talking about like muscle mass or mitochondrial development, um, there's this tendency to look at it as a four to six week period where you're going to see like a a decent amount of adaptation. And then there's about a four to six week period where it's going to decline, like if you don't train it. And so you can capture those those windows and, and then that periodic exposure, like I said, at least prevents the decline or maintains some measure of it as long as you're exposed to it. And then you can spend more of your time on something else. And that's how you, that's how you like superimpose these capabilities, right? Because you got stuff that's in total conflict. You know, when you're looking at oxidative development and let's just say that you had a kid that was trying to gain muscle mass, you know, for football or something. It's like, well, those are in total conflict. Right. They're going to take their they, they rely on the same resources for the constructive development of machinery. Right. Mm-hmm. But how do you stack that? It's like, well, I emphasize uh, unless, if they're low qualification, it doesn't matter. You just do, do them both. You'll be fine. But later on, it's like, OK, I got to emphasize development of one. And then I got to be really smart about the other one. And I like there might be elements that would be less in conflict. But if you're trying to do like. Um, like, uh, for lack of a better term, glycolytic intervals and, and gaining muscle mass at the same time, right? Like that is literally dipping into the bucket like way too many times because you're using the exact same resource. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that part I'm pretty firm on. I guess just the relationship between maintaining movement capabilities and introducing higher outlet trying to raise uh, adaptive outputs. Um, right. And so what What uh, I would do sort of like a litmus test, right? So mm-hmm. 
number one, do you have do you have any development in either direction, right? Like, have they have they ever emphasized one of those elements first, or are you trying to raise both of them at the same time? Again, that's a lower qualification. That's a lower training age. You might just be able to run them concurrently. But what I would do is, is I would say, okay, what's the most intensive aspect of this that would provide the greatest degree of interference to both, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, then, and then say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna introduce some measure of volume, right? And, and just see how much competition that I do have, right? And then every couple of weeks, you have some sort of KPI that you're following to sort of direct you. And then it's like, oh, as long as we're maintaining this, raise the volume, raise the force production, right? Okay. As long as we maintain what we need to maintain. Okay. That's, what, that's what makes this hard. Yeah, that, I mean, you know? I think my head was going there because uh, like, you know, typically what, what I would do in this sense is up front, we're going to prioritize movement capabilities just because everything, you know, if they, if we're pretty poor in that area, almost everything else is, forms this interference. Um, so like we really have to prioritize it, get it to a better spot. And then we have it in a better spot. And we obviously, the goal would be introduce the output-based activities while monitoring our KPIs on the movement capabilities. Yeah. But that data is like a little harder to interpret when the exposures are frequent throughout the week, I guess, is what I've been noticing. Like, it, I could be causing just enough interference every day that I'm seeing, you know, by, by taking some measurements each session, I'm seeing a decline in the movement capabilities. And I'm wondering if I just really kind of focus on a couple of those days being higher output and knowing like that I'm going to lose some movement capability on that yeah. day. Yeah. But like, am I seeing it come back by then having days that are, you know, not causing any interference and in the, in the net of the week is like, I have five days that didn't cause any interference and two days that did. Okay. That's, that's a perfect representation. When you, when you say, look at the net, it's like, can they recapture it? Under the under the circumstance, then you're perfectly fine. It's like all, like all you're doing either either you're looking at like this this small uh, period, so like a workout, a day, two days, three days, or whatever, and then you extrapolate it out and you say, okay, it's a seven to seven to ten day um, measure, and it's like, am I consistently recapturing my KPI within that time frame? If you're doing that, then you're perfectly fine. Right, you're not you're not you're, like you're achieving the goal, right? Because you're 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 getting the exposures that you want, and you're not seeing you're you're not like 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 at the end of the whatever the the iteration of your of your programming is at the end of that iteration, that's where you want to see the outcomes, right? So if I want higher for let's just say it's two weeks, like you iterate every two weeks. And you have your KPI every two weeks. It's like, okay, um, let's just say you're using like a split squat, a toe touch, and um, a medicine ball throw for distance, right? Let's just say you're, uh -huh. you're following those. 
So you're doing like an like a upper body power test, and then you got a couple of movement tests. Okay, at the end of the two weeks, where do you stand? Okay, adjust. Right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I mean, you know, if when you look at broad spectrum activities, like they're they're gonna do things that take certain things away, and then as long as they can recapture you, you're typically fine. Yeah. And I just want to hammer down how long it takes to recapture because especially like <laughs> well, like in the world of baseball, let's say it is a starting pitcher, for example. Uh -huh. It's like you know, these days that okay. off season might not be that well, you know, might not be that long. And some of these qualities might have to be trained throughout yeah. the year. And it's like, I need to know what, what can I take away and how long is it going to take me to bring it back? Because I want it back for the next start, I guess you could say. Right. So if they're, so if they're in a five-day rotation and they throw a bullpen on day three, right. It would behoove you to be able to recapture that stuff within that window. Right. So that they can be ready for the bullpen. Right. And that's your your medium exposure from a volumetric standpoint. Right. And so, you know, you've got two two places where you would want the to optimize movement, right? So before the bullpen. So you got two days to recapture that. Because chances are you're gonna have a high intensity exposure in there somewhere associated with the with the first uh appearance, right? Mm -hmm. Like within that 24 hour period, that's where you want to kind of condense your high intensity stuff, recapture it. It should be demonstrated in the bullpen. Bullpen will take some of it away. And then you have a couple of days to recapture it before the next appearance. If they're a start, like a, like a five rotation, five day rotation starter. Okay. I guess then just lastly, then sort of using bullpens or a game situation. It's like, if we do look at something like Charlie Francis and his sprint work, it would be like, okay, the same day that we sprint as fast as we can, we're gonna, in this case, like lift as heavy as we can. Uh -huh. Just try to just try to couple. Yes, that's what I'm kind of getting at. Just like couple all that on one day so that we have clear days that give us a chance to recapture. Absolutely, stuff. absolutely. And then, and again, looking looking at the is high low. It's like you look at like it was like high intensity and then a tempo day, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, that that's why it's like because he's trying to minimize, he's trying to develop two qualities that would typically oppose one another with the least amount of interference. Yeah. Okay. And like, so what what you may do then again to, to me to just thinking concentration of loading, it's like you you would have one day where the greatest volume of the the strongest adaptation that you're chasing is. I mean, it's it's very obvious that there's a lot more on that day compared to any other day within that within that morphocycle. Right. Yeah. Right. And then then there's just smaller exposures, right, to maintain that level of development until the next big exposure, which is going to promote the greatest degree of adaptation. Right. And then you just gotta you just gotta. Uh, keep track of things so you can figure out for each guy how many exposures that is because it'll be different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like I said, like this is this is the hard part. Yeah, right? yeah it'd be really nice. It'd be really nice to be able to write, you know, the the annual program and then have it, you know, follow it specifically and works perfectly every time. Yeah. All right.
right. Thank you. Like we, we've got a definition of, like we use a pronated foot, right? We've got a definition of that. But what's happened is that every foot that has a low arch, right, has been branded as a pronated foot, which implies that if I call every foot that has a low arch pronated, that it's using the same strategy, which it's not. So my question is a fundamental question, but it's something that um, struck me on one of the intensive calls with Manuel a little while back. You were comparing two weightlifters and he was attempting to uh, sort of figure out who was later um, in, the, in the pictures that he, he supplied. And it got me thinking about why we might see certain strategies used by some people uh, as opposed to others uh, outside of ISA differences. But uh, say, for instance, you know, we get people that are... are have, have moved along the line of compensatory strategies and then you'll see some variations where you get say for instance both tibias or you get heavily anterior anteriorly oriented pelvises which is other ones come through into sway back mm -hmm. the traditional hyperextended knees whatever uh -huh. pronated feet the supinated feet all these little slight differences that you see in compensatory strategies yeah. In my mind of thinking, and just tell me whether I've got this right or not, it's almost like there's a general path that people follow, but the way yeah. that they manage each part of that can be highly individualised. So it's not necessarily able of saying that person is later than that person because they've just used a slightly different strategy to get there as far as, you know, the progression's concerned. So not everyone's going to follow exactly the same route from moving from their start condition to an end game position, let's say. Well, there's 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 subtle differences in shape that that will be influential as to how much somebody can do something. Okay, so let me give you let me give you an example. Uh, professional basketball player, six foot eight, and wears a size eighteen shoe. That's American. I don't know what it is in Australia, but it's a big foot. It's a really long, yeah. big foot. He's also very tall. Okay. And then I got a five foot eight soccer player <clears throat> that wears a size nine shoe. Okay. Who has more time and distance to anteriorly orient? Time and distance. The time and distance. Right. So, so, so the six foot eight with an 18, like, so you're talking about a base of support that's this long with an 18 shoe and a, and a base of support that's this long with a size nine shoe. Who has more time to translate forward? Yeah, the big guy. Absolutely. And so, so the potential for anti-orientation is magnified because he has more time and distance to, to turn things towards the ground. It's also longer. So I have these big long curves that would, that would be present um, potentially in in his spine versus the five foot eight guy that moves forward and hits his hits the end constraint very very quickly so he might not appear to be as oriented as somebody that would be much taller and has greater distance forward right if i have a wider pelvis structure i have more space to spread out sideways right so it alters it alters yeah, time yeah. it alters the time of the exposure, and so again, it it it, it changes the the uh, uh, it doesn't change the process, right? 
It just says how much of something might be present because I just have capability. I have so access you, to more, right? Yeah, okay. Okay. If so I have a longer, if I have a longer femur, if I have a longer femur, I have greater capacity to shorten it by right by constraint. Right. So I can see more, I can like you see the slender folk with a lot of a lot of bends and twists. Right. You can see it very easily. But they 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 may have a relatively speaking, they have more space to turn things within the constraint. So you might see it more obvious in one representation than the other, but the same process is happening, right? So, like, like you know, when you get- so many, There's only so many strategies that are available within the constraints of a human being, okay? Within those constraints, there will be subtle, subtle differences that would be associated. You know, if I could show you, Matt, I could show you 14 different representations of the pelvis, okay? And each one will follow the same path just to varying degrees. Because again, if I don't have anterior posterior space, I can only go forward so far before I hit the end constraint. Whereas if I have a much longer distance, then it, this is why you see differences in feet. It's like, why do some people drop the IR into their rear foot? Why do some people drop it straight through the, the, the subtail joint? Why do some people drop it right in front of the ankle? Why do some people drop it in the first, the metatarsal phalangeal joint? Right? It's because the structures above that determine how far and how fast they can go forward or will go forward. So there's differences, so, individual yeah, differences that determine how quickly things happen. And then that determines where we would see the, adap the adaptive behavior. Yeah, so you could have someone with equally as poor hip measures, say, for instance, and li as limited range of motion equal between two people that present quite differently in the in the way that they've they've managed you know managed to um use their compensatory strategies to get them there yeah okay absolutely. yeah absolutely yeah. so the the notion that you know so, you can't really go by the notion that a, a pronated foot is at x point on the act on the x point on the on the um on the system and then if they move to a uh, a supinated foot that is further along and so on and so forth. It doesn't quite work as simplistically as that. It would be really nice if we could, if we could say that, but, yeah. <laughs> but and then you start throwing out a term that is very ill-defined mm. or, or, yeah. or poorly explained, right? Like we, we've got a definition of, like we use a pronated foot, right? We've got a definition of that, yes. but what's happened is that every foot that has a low arch right, has been branded as a pronated foot, which implies that if I call every foot that has a low arch pronated, that it's using the same strategy, which it's not. That becomes part of the problem because our descriptors are poor, right? We have to understand that, yes, it's, so pronation is an ir strategy, okay? Yes, we're looking at ir situations, but, we can't define it exactly the same way because if we make an assumption that every pronated foot is exactly the same, we should just have one solution. And that yeah, one solution yeah, should solve every problem with a pronated foot. And you know better than anybody else. It's like, that ain't true, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
So have you thought about how, if you were to map this out in, in your model, how do you, have you thought about a method of sort of visual description that best accommodates that? So you're thinking like, um, yeah, you I, know, I say it all the time. <laughs> I, I, I try to avoid using, using those terms, right? Like there's dirty words. Yeah. There's dirty words that I don't use or I try not to use. So I, I get a little sick to my stomach. Um, but you, so when we talk about, we talk, we're, if we're just talking about feet, we talk about feet and we talk about where the internal rotation is, is present, right? It's somewhere within the base of support and it's defined by where the center of gravity is. So if I said, if I said, a, 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 okay, a, a bunion, a bunion, is a pronated first uh, metatarsal phalangeal joint. Okay. Does that help you if I say it's pronated? Not really. Okay. But if I tell you that that there's a there's a there's a an extreme amount of IR present proximally in that first metatarsal, that starts to make a lot more sense. Or I could say that the internal rotation is dropping through the midfoot. And then, then you say, oh, that's a different strategy than the bunion. Yeah, okay. But but the but the the influence is still the internal rotation. Yeah. Okay. It just tells me like how the center of gravity is moving from the the the, the back of the base of support to the front of the base of support. This is how you translate through propulsion. It's like, how fast are you going? Because I know the IR has to go through the foot. It like it's going to go from the rear foot to the to the to the tip of the toe. Okay. Always will. Always will. In some way, shape, or form. What I'm trying to determine is, is where is it most impactful? Like where is most of the IR? To what degree is that IR, IR being applied? And is it a distributed IR? Because when we rarely get to see this, we rarely get to see this. We rarely see a perfect foot, at least at least in the initial stages. We see a lot of improvements um, over time, but we don't we don't really see this perfect foot under most circumstances when people have problems. Okay, and so so what I'm trying to determine is like, okay, how quickly does the IR go through the foot, and where is it most prominent? Because that tells me where the center of gravity ends up. And what I want to be able to do is I want to control the center of gravity through the base of support, so I get this nice even distribution of IR through the foot. Because that's relative motions. Yeah. Versus yeah. the orientations that push IR straight down into the ground at some moment in time, which will magnify the representation through the foot into the ground. So it's going to be the rear foot. It's going to be straight through the subtalar joint. It's going to be anterior to the, to the ankle through the midfoot. It's going to twist through the metatarsal phalangeal joint, et cetera, et cetera. 